Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. In episode 71, we spoke to my friend Nir Eisler about republicanism. What is the concept of republicanism in uh, the modern world? And today we're going to dive deep into what happened to republicanism and solidarity in Israel and what can be done about it in order to build the republicanism, I would say, mindset in Israeli society. So, Nir, welcome back to Balagan. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Nir, in, in our last episode, we spoke about the concept of republicanism and about David Ben-Gurion and how um, it was embedded in Israeli society. What happened yeah. to it over the years? And can you put a finger, can you point about a specific time when republicanism started to decline in Israel? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically what happened to Mamlakhtiyut, to Israeli republicanism, was the same thing that happened to republicanism all over the world. That it declines at the same time that the welfare state, the social democratic welfare state founded after the Second World War in all Western uh, countries, when it began to decline. It is around the uh, you know, late 70s, especially during the 80s, the process of uh, privatization, of uh, turning from a social democratic Republican society, Republican again, of course, not in the American sense of yeah. the Republican Party, but, but in everything we spoke about uh, during the last time. So a Republican society, a republic that is of a social democratic welfare state, uh, turning into a privatized uh, neoliberal economy, which is uh, globalized. Americanized. It actually started, if we have to draw the line, started in 1977 in the Mapa. You know, the, 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 the political upheaval when the Likud with Menachem Begin won uh, in the election. Exactly. Exactly. The Israel was far from privatized. Even in the serious privatization actually took place uh, even in uh, Rabin's uh, second government since 1992. And uh, even later, in the in the deep into the 2000s, you know, uh, public companies were privatized. But as a process, uh, Israel began its long journey into uh, becoming a neoliberal, disintegrated society in this upheaval in 1977. Now, the thing is, you see, uh, excessive privatization actually know, undermines, uh, profoundly undermines everything uh, that is about republicanism. Because an active uh, citizen gradually becomes a passive consumer. And, uh, so it's all about the money. Active, it's all about the money, and it's also all about not really controlling your own destiny, and not feeling a part of a society, but uh, an isolated, atomized consumer. You know, going to the mall and uh, buying from uh, a global uh, corporates, not uh, an individual uh, that is a part of a society, a part of a community, a part of a political movement. So basically, the meaning of privatization is the society becomes less and less collective and more and more uh, individualized. Now, what happened in Israel basically was you know, the consciousness and the uh, uh, actual uh, economical uh, reality have uh, 
very deep connection. Very deep, you know, that they're interconnected. It's not like this vulgar Marxist stance that uh, the being uh, dictates uh, consciousness. It's a very, very complex uh, mutual dependence. You know, the what actually happened in our daily life shape gradually shape our uh, consciousness, our uh, feelings, our culture, and vice versa. So basically, in 1985, that's another uh, another important uh, point. You know, a, a unity government of both uh, the Labour Party, led by Shimon Peres. Yeah, and, 19, uh, 1985, yeah, the, yeah. the unity government. Yeah, so it, it began with the Tratshomir from the Likud. Uh, yes. I don't remember uh, which one of them was the, uh, the prime minister uh, when it began, but it was... Uh, per- Peres was first and Shamir was second. Right. There was a there right. was so, a real uh, I can tell you that the Likud party they were really f- uh, afraid that uh, Paris is not going to honor the agreement. By the way, <laughs> well, uh, I, I would I, I don't blame them for being afraid yeah. about it. <laughs> so, so you see, Paris uh, was a very shrewd politician. Uh, most of our listeners probably remember uh, Shimon Peres who was kind of a a mixture of. Uh, uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, Martin Luther King, and, uh, and Nelson Mandela, very honorable, noble, old statesman, uh, kind of admired as an old man, and he really nurtured uh, this kind of image. He was actually a very shrewd, very uh, cunning politician, and he was also a neoliberal, and he was a major, he had a major role in, in turning Israel into a neoliberal uh, society. So what happened is the program for the stability of the of Israeli economy. Yeah, we, need, we need to remind the audience that there was a big uh, economic crisis in Israel in the early 80s. Right. It started actually when the Likud got into power, the inflation exactly. and uh, the market started to go crazy. Exactly, and, and it didn't happen for no reason. It happened for a very good reason because the Likud tried to implement in a very crude manner uh, a neoliberal uh, policy and it was basically the outcome some say it was deliberate i don't think it was deliberate i think that uh, it's a kind of a paranoid uh, a conspiracy to think it was actually that they meant to cause a crisis etc but they definitely tried to turn israeli economy to uh, uh, to liberal it didn't work it was um, uh, very crude and very uh, you know premature it, was, it wasn't a good uh, goal to begin with, yeah, but, but it was also, it, it caused uh, uh, a major inflation. But you know, even though I kind of said that uh, it is uh, exaggerated to, to say it's a conspiracy, it did pave the way uh, for this uh, program that, that did begin the structural change of Israeli society, yeah. of Israeli economy, that is, and, and, and the change in society followed. So during the decade that followed it, the Israeli economy became uh, more open to the global market, more private. During the privatization yeah, no, was huge in the eighties, but it grew up in the nineties. Actually, if to be honest, uh, yeah. to, to be honest, Yitzhak Rabin from the Labour Party, yes. the late Yitzhak Rabin was a great man. Uh, uh, and uh, his first government during the the 1970s, the last government before the upheaval, before 1977, he was uh, after uh, Golda Meir. Right. He was, uh, 
think from 1974 to 1977. So if uh, if the first government was actually the the top, the, I mean the most social democratic government in the history of Israel, the he broadened the uh, social democratic policy and the welfare state to um, uh, layers of society that didn't enjoy it enough before. So it was really, uh, it was the golden age of Israeli social democracy. But in uh, the 1990s, his second government was the, quite the opposite in the socioeconomic uh, uh, dimension. That it was, uh, it, it, you know, it was very egalitarian, uh, uh, citizen-wise, he, he did uh, put lots of money, unlike right-wing uh, uh, government, it put lots right. of mo- lots of money in public institutions, in uh, you know, in uh, education, especially. It, it, it did lots of it, Rabin. Yes, made lots of lots of good in uh, education, in uh, uh, welfare, infrastructure. In, uh, yes, in the quality. country was developed. Uh, I mean, exactly. With, I yeah, thought that yeah. we had oranges at that time. That uh, that was our main uh, <laughs> uh, export uh, in Israel. Yeah, according to time. according to Bibi, right? Before Bibi, yeah. there was nothing besides oranges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God for Bibi that made Israel into all that all that it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, we didn't. Yeah, we are uh, sarcastic, just to for a little, a little bit for our audience. Uh, yeah. 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 For some Bibi admirers. That mistakenly uh, listen to us. No, they, they are welcome to listen to us. But uh, no, w- w- what I meant to say is that um, you know, uh, Rabin's government also did a very important thing uh, for the Arab public for uh, yes. uh, uh, through equality uh, to promoting equality. But what it did with all of that, uh, it also privatized the hell out of uh, <laughs> out of Israeli public companies. It, it, it was in a, uh, you know, of the, in of a, the governmental and the Istadrut uh, uh, companies. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Chaim Ramon also led it. Uh, uh, he was the uh, the last head of the Istadrut that uh, played a major role in uh, basically privatizing most of its assets. So it was the golden age of, uh, we, we spoke about the, the golden age of uh, social democracy in the 90s late 1970s so in the 1990s it was the definitely the golden age of privatization now the ideological implications or uh, reflections of these processes were also complex complex because you see privatization was it didn't go well with the previous ethos with the ethos of Mamlachtiyut, of republicanism of citizen uh, the active involvement of citizens was also the responsibility of all of us to each other and, and via the state is the responsibility of the states towards the public. All of this ethos that, that the state is responsible for the education of all Israeli children, for the health of all Israeli citizens, for, um, for the infrastructure. Yeah, the contract, basically... Let's say the contract between, uh, between the civilian or the citizen and the state. Right, that, that, that's how it's called, and, and you know, it's a very appropriate thing, but I, I would also say it's more than a contract, because it's not a kind of a business contract, it's more like uh, uh, an ongoing commitment for, of all of us to each other, to, to co-manage the public sphere, the state. The state is, it belongs to us, and we belong to it. 
not as an abstract, uh, you know, nation, right. like in right-wing uh, ideologies, but in a very live, alive and, and uh, you know, secular idea that we, this is our life together as a nation, as a society, and we, we are responsible for our future and, and our presence. So all of it was kind of collided, the Zionist ethos, which was essentially Republican, as I said in the, in the last time, it basically uh, interfered. It was a kind of a nuisance for uh, the followers of Milton Friedman of privatization. They needed an ideology. It wasn't, again, it, it wasn't deliberate or conscious, but as social processes and cultural processes uh, unfold, uh, basically uh, they needed an ideology that will legitimize privatization. That is legitimized individualization, which is the, you know, social and cultural implication of uh, economical privatization. And this ideology was postmodernism. And in Israel, it's post-Zionism. The post-Zionist or anti-Zionist, but it wasn't the old, it's the old uh, communist anti-Zionism. It was a kind of a postmodern, post-Zionist ideology that um, found many moral uh, justifications. Reasoning, to being uh, ambivalent at best, to detest at worst uh, the Zionist project, and it, actually to detest the collective foundations of Israeli society. Now, after uh, the privatized social uh, order became the, the, the hegemonic order, you know, uh, uh, the ideology became different. It wasn't this post-Zionism of the uh, liberal left uh, that actually uh, kind of castrated the socialist left, the old Zionist socialist left. It was a new form of, of um, nationalism that was uh, hollow, that uh, was more uh, uh, interested in symbols, a little like America. It's not a good analog analogy, but I would say it was kind of a an imitation or a not very successful imitation of uh, American nationalism or um, patriotism. That is, uh, there is a kind of a very, I would say, uh, not firm but far away framework of nation, but in your own daily life, everything is private. Now, it wasn't the entire story because the Israeli society wasn't only privatized, it was also uh, becoming uh, divided into sectors. The poorer layers of society found, uh, or actually the right, the right wing uh, uh, provided for them compensation mechanisms, as Danny Gutwein uh, would call it. Israeli yeah, social democracy. Sociology of Israel. Yeah, he's a, he's a historian, he's also a very, very interesting, very original social democratic thinker. He would probably explain his theory better, uh, maybe in some other conversation, but uh, basically what I'm saying is that the sectors without, uh, you know, we don't have time to discuss it in more detail, but the division between sectors became a kind of an organizing uh, uh, reasoning of Israeli society, which is the, just the complete opposite of the Republican notion of uh, you know, egalitarian coexistence, uh, the, the universal responsibility of the state, the universal appliance, you know, across the border, as you, as you said, 
of the services, of the, the laws, etc. Now, the Haredim, for example, they became a sector, organized sector, that supported uh, both right-wing and a few left-wing governments, even though in the last decade, their support became solely for the right-wing. That's the reason for, for contemporary uh, political situation in Israel. So the Haredim became an organized sector, you know, uh, having different uh, benefits, different rights. On the one hand, uh, that maintains the poverty of most of the Haredim. On the other hand, from the government. It, it's, it's not a universal welfare state anymore that we as individuals can unite as a society and as a nation behind them. It's a new order in which every sector kind of takes care uh, for itself and every individual takes care of itself. And the, the large uh, secular public or uh, liberal public uh, also became kind of a sector uh, in its consciousness more and more. Because they became because the middle people, class. Yeah, and, and they felt more and more alienated towards the Haredim, towards the settlers, etc. But but they weren't a sector in the sense they were mostly uh, uh, just uh, individualized and privatized. And uh, that's a part of the reason why why the political power of this public uh, is constantly declining. So basically, the, the republicanism, uh, that its uh, material foundation was the welfare state, was gradually replaced by a neoliberal society disintegrated, divided into individuals and into sectors. That was actually the process up until the last decade in which the neoliberal decline of uh, republicanism was followed in far more violent attack by uh, the right-wing populism. It actually attacked the, the very core or the last remains of uh, republicanism that is the the foundation of, of Israeli democracy itself. So in a, in a paradox way, okay, the right wing, which is more nationalistic and try to portray itself as more patriotic in a, you know, uh, per se, yeah. eventually is, I would say, crumbling the Israeli solidarity or Israeli society and its uh, backbone. If that exactly. is happening from the right wing and we're saying, you know, that we want to bring republicanism back. So how do you do it in today's Israel? You know, uh, we're recording this episode after November 1st, 2022, when uh, the election results leave no room for uh, imagining uh, yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu is back into power. He's on his way to become prime minister again. And apparently it looks like at the moment that it's going to be a hard right wing slash ultra orthodox uh, government. So it's going to be a very conservative government. So, you know, if we connect it to the election results, what do you think the left wing is missing in Israel and how, you know, they can make a republicanism great again? <laughs> well, that's an excellent question, Kobe. We also recording this episode uh, on uh, November the 4th. It is yeah. exactly 27 years after Yitzhak Rabin uh, was murdered. Yes. By a right-wing uh, zealot traitor. Yeah. And, uh, he was assassinated uh, by Igal Amir. Yeah. A Jewish student, Jewish law student, uh, we should say. Yeah. Very ironic. Yeah. Which was, by the way, the worst attack on Israeli republicanism from the foundation of 
from from the foundation of the Israeli state. That was definitely the worst, most severe attack on republicanism. Uh, this betrayal of uh, you know uh, an Israeli Jewish citizen murdering uh, his democratically elected leader, who was also a decorated the war hero, you know, a chief of staff of the IDF, led the, the IDF to to the great victory in the Six Days War. So this kind of very radical right-wing ideology was marginal. It did, you know, the, the right-wing mainstream, Benjamin Netanyahu then, he took part in the incitement that led to Robin's murder. Yeah, but, uh, to, still, to at least the pretension. Yeah, the assassination, the, the, the political assassination. So at least uh, Bibi and the Likud maintain the pretension of being Republican, being that uh, is being committed to the good of the entire Israeli society, you know, the public good, the, the our shared uh, national and civic uh, existence here. But uh, more or less in the last decade, decade at the same time that uh, populism began rising in every uh, Western country, and Trumpism was, of course, the a very disturbing uh, American uh, example. Modern example that influenced the entire world, obviously, because the United States is still uh, the only superpower, uh, at least in the Western world. So the Likud gradually became a populist party. It began attacking all Republican, basically, institutions, Mossadot Mamlachtim, yes. right in Israel, from the, from the uh, you know, IDF in the Elora Zaria case, you know, uh, a soldier uh, called bloodedly murder terrorist after being. Uh, you know, uh, neutralized and uh, imprisoned, so he yeah. executed him. And of course, the officers in the IDF uh, saw it very severe, severely, and populist yeah. right-wing people just went against the, the IDF and against the core principle of uh, moral and ethical way of yeah, fighting. that you don't execute, that you don't execute a, a dying uh, terrorist on the floor. Yeah. By the way, yeah. I we can say that also Prime Minister Netanyahu at that time said that it's not okay, but then he turned when his base actually turned against him. Right. See, what, what happened with Benjamin Netanyahu that is a cynic and opportunist, and uh, uh, because of his political corrupt uh, and, and uh, criminal ostensibly corruption and his ongoing cases, when he realized that he's going to sit to, to go to jail for uh, various uh, ways of corruption that he was involved in, he actually became the prime carrier of the virus of populism. He, he was the one bringing Kahanism, the Ben Gvir's ideology, Kahanism is uh, basically the Jewish form of uh, neo-Nazism. And I'm not exaggerating, uh, listeners may uh, I invite our uh, audience to, you know, to uh, to see the horrible resemblance, basically identity, between the Nuremberg laws of uh, Nazi Germany to the political platform of Kach, the Kahnisti party that uh, became illegal in the 1980s. But uh, now Ben Gvir kind of uh, pretends not to be a Kahnist, but he definitely is. He got the Heksher uh, from Netanyahu himself for political exactly. reasons. Exactly. And that's why uh, he got the Heksher and he got, he got the... So basically, uh, uh, the Likud today and the alliance between Kahnistim, this, this, this kind of 
Israeli neo-Nazis, right-wing populists from the Likud party and the ultra-Orthodox Haredim. This alliance is now, has now won the election. And you see, it is ironic that the political uh, uh, right-wing is uh, supposedly uh, more national and more patriotic, or pretends to be, is the enemy of republicanism and basically of the foundations of, of the nation. Yes. But it's not that surprising because you know historically, historically the original left wing, the, the term was coined uh, after the French Revolution when the Assembly of the People, the the uh, nationalists, that that uh, uh, in the left, in the left was the I think the uh, the left side of the assembly, and the monarchists on the right. So basically, nationalism and republicanism were intertwined. Or different aspects of the same process, originally a left-wing uh, revolutionary ideology. Uh, so it's not that surprising that uh, you say the, the uh, everyone who wants a more conservative uh, order, uh, a more, uh, I would say, uh, a society less unified, uh, is basically right-wing. Because the right-wing always wanted a very shiny a very kind of uh, uh, bold and, and uh, uh, that you can't really ignore uh, this kind of uh, framework of, of nationalist, uh, uh, I would say, uh, an out, uh, an external uh, layer of nationalism. But the reason that they, they, they wanted this to be so ceremonious and so, uh, you know, uh, um, difficult to ignore and so very uh, to to mark and to to make it bold it was because they, they disintegrated what's inside it unlike left wing because the left wing wanted to to base uh, historically uh, the nation state to base it on actual solidarity and, yeah uh, for for right wing uh, that actually wants a very disintegrated society tries to compensate it by but making the nationalist uh, external layer or uh, you know framework which is very hollow in the right-wing vision because it's not based on a real unified society so so we, it has to to be more uh, kind of uh, ceremonious about it more uh, uh, to to celebrate it uh, very loudly but it doesn't make him it more national it's just a poor compensation uh, of being less national in the in the profound sense but i do want to ask you one more question before we we're closing because we're almost at the end of our uh, recording time no, that, today so just say what you ask what what should we do today right we should uh, end with this. actually the right wing is literally taking advantage of identity politics but it yeah. doesn't take it to the sole person but it makes yeah. it more tribal while the extreme right. left, the progressive movement is taking it to the, you know, individual. And it's yeah. quite awkward because the right wing, you would say, they are not using identity politics, but they are actually using the same methods, but in a different way. Definitely. How you embed nationalism today, you know, through the left wing, if you want to, you know, bring a new message to the left wing in Israel, how do you use it and how do you make it, you know, uh, I would say, uh, possible again. Well, you say identity politics is essentially right-wing. 
and contemporary right wing is really, as you said, using in an extremely irresponsible manner. It uses uh, identity politics to further divide and wound Israeli uh, already uh, wounded society. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu and its, fol- its followers are the most anti-Zionist political uh, uh, campaign now because they they um, they actually uh, uh, try to divide Israeli society into Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, you know, according to yeah. ethnic heritage, which is an essentially anti-Zionist concept. This kind of uh, you know identifying with the the old Galuti, the old Shtetl identity that Zionism uh, was all about replacing with a modern, national, united national identity. So contemporary right-wing is, is attacking, basically, it, it tries to disguise the, the class, the, the socio-economical cause to the uh, distress of uh, uh, poorer uh, layer society by telling them that it's all about the, you know, their fight with the, the hegemony, the economical elite. On the other end, the Republican uh, alliance that um, you know united against this, which came into expression in uh, the new, uh, the, the late, uh, the last government, the changed government. Yeah. So this what very... they call the change, the change government and the change block. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So this Mamlakhti uh, alliance, Republican again, in the the opposite of, of uh, the, the Republican Party, but. This Repub- uh, alliance of uh, uh, republicanism, defending the republic against the, the uh, right-wing populism, their problem was that they barely pay any attention. I mean, the left-wing tried, not enough, but most of the, of the members of the government didn't pay attention to socioeconomical issues. They didn't promote social democracy. They were actually, they were actually a little bit worse. Uh, uh, socioeconomically speaking, uh, a little bit more neoliberal than uh, the, the previous populist uh, right-wing government. So what Israeli left needs to do now is to, to offer uh, a real vision, a real vision uh, rooted in, in social reality, uh, to, to offer uh, real answers to the distress and to the problems and to the anxieties existential anxieties of many Israelis. You see, just as Hillary Clinton failed by, by calling uh, Trump voters deplorable and uh, taking pride in the, in the fact that she, she uh, closed uh, some polluting uh, coal uh, uh, mines or something like that, right? Uh, instead of realizing that, that this uh, act uh, ruined people's lives due to being empathetic and... and, and sensitive and solidary with them instead of just pushing them into the loving arms of uh, evil, really evil, sinister populism of, of Trump, who very cynically exploited their uh, distress. So basically the same thing, not the same thing, but uh, quite, sim- quite a similar thing. thing. Well, it's the same uh, mechanism, I would say. Yeah. The same mechanism, the different uh, circumstances, different nuances, but yeah. Essentially, uh, right-wing populism everywhere nourishes from the pain uh, of people feeling uh, uh, they don't have social security, they don't have a sense of belonging, and the liberal elite is globalized, is alienated towards them, and uh, 
I wouldn't say that this really is the situation in Israel, but left wing in Israel has to be social democratic again. It has to be more national again, and more Zionist in the sense that identifying the importance of, of the collective foundations of society, both in the socio-economical level, that is social democratic uh, welfare state and policy, but also in the cultural uh, level. Uh, not to not to ignore the importance of a collective identity, uh, but also to fight for that this identity will be, as I said in the in our uh, uh, last uh, conversation, this identity has to be uh, anchored and to be uh, its um, core should be a Jewish national identity, but but it has to be broadened into a an egalitarian, or at least, you know, we, we, we have to to make sure it will be as egalitarian as possible. But of course, you see, in, in the legal sense, it's, it has to be yeah. completely egalitarian. Also in the social sense, egalitarian civic uh, partnership with all minorities. It has to be uh, an Israeliness, which is modern, which is open, which is inclusive, uh, which is just the opposite of the post-Zionist anti-Republican populist uh, Jewish identity of uh, Jewish supremacy, of racism, of uh, xenophobia, and uh, yeah. uh, basically basically uh, a, a disintegration of all the universal, all of all the egalitarian foundations of the uh, Israeli democracy and of the of Zionism, that uh, this uh, Kahnistim, this uh, uh, Israeli neo-Nazis uh, offer, and that Bibi also promotes. So, for political enemy. reasons, yeah. yeah, yeah. For his own so political benefits, we will say. Exactly, political and legal benefits, uh, let's say. So the worst enemy of Israeli republicanism and of the Zionist vision that was essentially republican, Zionism is rep- republicanism, is a form of republicanism. So yeah. the worst enemy of the Zionist vision and of uh, the state of Israel today is the uh, the Jewish nationalist supremacist uh, uh, shtetl uh, identity of uh, the exiled Jew of, of the populist and call it yeah this it's is funny that we have the exiled Jew in 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 our own country but uh, that's a yeah. topic probably for another episode now <laughs> yeah it's, it's horrifying but you know actually I I would just say before we we end the uh, conversation because we should uh, we should end uh, yeah. It now, but but I will just say that Herzl foresaw it. You know, I mentioned the uh, Neuland is a, a utopian book drawing the outline for the, an ideal Jewish state, and he actually actually uh, foresaw. He has this character with a Jewish version of uh, the Austrian anti-Semitist uh, politic uh, politician or different politicians that he knew. Uh, it's called the Rabbi Geyer. Geyer is a corpse eater. You know, like a vulture or something like that. So yeah, Rabbi oh, Geyer, okay, um, what do you call it? Uh, scavenger, uh, exactly. a scavenger. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So this Rabbi Geyer is is a is a, a shtetl, an exiled Jew, anti-Zionist, uh, uh, who seeks uh, Jewish supremacy in the new Jewish state, and defeated politically. So Herzl's vision, do you know, Herzl is Zionism. Herzl is, is the is the founder of the political Zionist movement, uh, of Zionism as a political movement. So he, he knew that this kind of this kind of uh, monstrosity will try to to rise in the Jewish state, 
and uh, and they knew the way to to fight it is by by a strong republic. And uh, this is our major challenge today. So we still have a lot more to talk about it, I guess. But Definitely. what I wanted to say that now your challenge is to uh, forward it to the leadership of the crumbling Israeli left. And we, we will need to see, you know, what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you see, the, the problem, problems I described are not only of the left, they're even more of the center parties. I didn't, uh, we didn't uh, make this distinction today. It'll be better to continue it. Yeah. So, Neil, uh, first thing, thank you very, very much again. Always welcome. a pleasure you. Uh, having you. Definitely. And I wanted to tell our audience, by the way, you were mentioning the Histadrut, and actually in episode uh, 36 in my podcast, you're mentioning the Histadrut, and in episode 36 on our first season, I had the pleasure of uh, actually interviewing uh, Professor Rudy Manor when we spoke about the Histadrut and its role in Israel. And if you want to hear more about solidarity that Nir and I mentioned, then go to episode 14, where Nir and I uh, had a conversation about it. I definitely recommend both conversations. Rudy is a fascinating uh... Uh, meant to to listen to. Yes. Munir, thank you very, very much again. Thank and you. And let's hope Always for better pleasure. days. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.